we are going to start a new Bible study series tonight. We finished up on the Minor Prophets the last time that we were together. We're going to embark upon a new series this evening uh, dealing with the parables of Jesus. Uh, we're going to be looking at the various parables of Jesus. Uh, will it be an exhaustive uh, Bible study, meaning will we cover every single parable? I don't know, uh, but we're going to cover the bulk of them. Most of them you are familiar with, but there's some parables that you're not familiar with. I would venture to believe, I, it's not like I know what you know, but I think I know what you know uh, uh, when, when it comes to some of these parables. Uh, there are things to be learned from these parables. First of all, let's start with what a parable is. A parable is essentially an illustration. It is a contemporary illustration given by Jesus to help make a spiritual or a moral point. Uh, Jesus taught in parables, and I did not look this up before I came out here tonight, but I believe I'm correct. Uh, they drill certain things in your head when you're in seminary. I think that there are 38 parables of Jesus. Uh, we gonna take 38 weeks to go through all the parables. The answer again is probably no. But there are some things that we can learn from uh, these parables that we think can be helpful. When I say that they are contemporary illustrations, we, we, we have to, uh, uh, explain that. We, we have to cover that. They're contemporary to Jesus. They're contemporary to his time. They're contemporary to the people to whom he is speaking. Now, there's some that, that, that are going to be easily relatable to you if you are of a certain age or from a certain background, like tonight's parable. We're, we're dealing with uh, what is the first parable in all three synoptic accounts, and that is the parable of the sower and the seeds. Uh, and I, I know some of y'all still like growing stuff. Uh, y'all like going out there throwing seeds around and all this stuff. And no, that ain't me. <laughs> and that's the point I was going to make. I don't know nothing about throwing seeds nowhere. And, and, and whenever I did try to throw seeds, ain't nothing come from it. Uh, so, 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 I... I kill stuff. If you, if you want it to die, bring it to me. But those of you who have an agrarian background, those of you who, who came up in the country, or those of you who still do farming, and I know these days we do community gardens and what have you, you ought to be able to relate to this parable. Uh, that, that there are certain things about this parable that prove to be easily relatable, yet the point that Jesus seeks to make is very clear. Uh, and, and it's important that you understand what each aspect of the parable represents in order for us to come away with the proper uh, meaning that Jesus is trying to convey. As I said, this parable is found in all three synoptic gospel accounts. That means that it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I want us to look at it from Mark. So I invite your attention, please, to Mark chapter 4, and we're going to look at the first 25 verses of Mark chapter 4. 
Okay. He went back to teaching by the sea. A crowd built up to such built up to such a great size that he had to get into an offshore boat, using the boat as a pulpit as the people pushed to the water's edge. He taught by using stories, many stories. Listen, what do you make of this? A farmer planted seed. As he scattered the seed, some of it fell on the road and birds ate it. Some fell in the gravel. It sprouted quickly, but didn't put down roots. So when the sun came up, it withered just as quickly. Some fell in the weeds. As it came up, it was strangled among the weeds, and nothing came of it. Some fell on good earth and came up with a flourish, producing a harvest, exceeding his wildest dreams. Are you listening to this? Really listening? When they were off by themselves, those who were close to him, along with the 12, asked about the stories. He told them, you've been given insight into God's kingdom. You know how it works. But to those who can't see it yet, everything comes in stories, creating readiness, nudging them toward receptive insight. These are people whose eyes are open but don't see a thing whose ears are open but don't understand a word, who avoid making an about face and getting forgiven. He continued, do you see how this story works? All my stories work this way. The farmer plants the word. Some people are like the seed that falls on the hardened soil of the road. No sooner do they hear the word than Satan snatches away what has been planted in them. And some are like the seed that lands in the gravel. When they first hear the word, they respond with great enthusiasm. But there is such shallow soil of character that when the emotions wear off and some difficulty arrives, there's nothing to show for it. The seed cast in the weeds represents the ones who hear the kingdom news but are overwhelmed with worries about all the things they have to do and all the things they want to get. The stress strangles what they heard and nothing comes of it. But the seed planted in the good earth represents those who hear the word, embrace it, and produce a harvest beyond their wildest dreams. Jesus went on, does anyone bring a lamp home and put it under a wash tub or beneath the bed? Don't you put it up on a table or on the mantle? We're not keeping secrets. We're telling them we're not, we're not keeping, I'm sorry, we're not keeping secrets. We're telling them. We're not hiding things. We're bringing them out into the open. Are you listening to this? Really listening. Listen carefully to what I am saying, and be wary of the shrewd advice that tells you how to get ahead in the world on your own. Giving, not getting, is the way. Generosity begets generosity. Stinginess impoverishes. You hear that? All right. We're going to cover these verses, but I want to cover it in, 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 in a kind of unique way. We're not going to go verse by verse, line by line, because 
There are things that can be grouped together in a different sequence than, than as it is written that will make it more beneficial to us. Let's start in the middle of the, uh, of, of the passage. Let's start with what Jesus says about why he teaches the way that he teaches. He says, you've been given insight into the kingdom. But there are those who don't understand. Their eyes are open. They don't see a thing. Their ears are open, but they don't understand a word. They avoid making an about face and getting forgiven. Why does Jesus teach in parables? Why, why does he use this? They ask. His disciples ask. Those who are with him, followers ask. Why do you teach this way instead of other ways? He says, because it makes it easier for them to at least understand what I'm saying. I have to make it plain. I have to make it so simple that even a three-year-old can understand it. Y'all remember the movie, I guess it's been about 20 years now, I know I'm getting old. Y'all remember the movie Philadelphia with, with Denzel Washington and Tom Hanks and, and Denzel Washington uh, is going into the courtroom, and, and as he cross-examines witnesses, he'll say things like, break it down for me. Say it to me simply, like I'm a three-year-old. Talk to me like I'm a three-year-old. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I have to break these spiritual matters down to its simplest, most basic form if they are to have even a hint of a hope of understanding what it is that I am talking about. So let's start with this as we open up this series on Jesus and his parables. He wants us to understand God's kingdom. He wouldn't go through the process of breaking it down if he didn't want you to understand God's kingdom. So if you're sitting there and you're saying, I just don't understand. Can you meet Jesus halfway? He's brought it down to as elementary a level as he possibly can. Can you meet him halfway? Can you elevate your understanding to, 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 to at least the cellar level so that you can understand what it is that Jesus is trying to to accomplish. Look at what he says about these to whom he's talking. He says, their eyes are open, but they do not see. Their ears are open, but they do not hear or understand. They are unwilling to do an about face and change their ways. He's saying the problem is not with what I'm teaching. The problem is with your receptivity to what I'm teaching. You don't want to hear it. You have a problem with it. You, 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 you build up a resistance to it. What parent in here has ever had to tell their child to do the same thing three times? 
four times, five times. Now, I know of a certain generation, and if you're from that generation, once was enough, because if you didn't do it the first time, you were going to get a beat. Now, all right, let, let's throw you out the way, okay? And let's deal with what's going on right now. Right now, you have to say the same thing three times, four times, five times. And it's not because they can't understand. It's that they don't want to understand. Let me ask you this. How many people in here have been saved 30 years? Raise your hands. Anybody in here who's been, who's been saved 30 years, raise your hand. Keep your hands up if you've been saved 40 years. Keep your hands up if you've been saved 50 years. All right, I got a whole lot of folk who's got hands up. Let me ask you a question. What's so hard to understand about love your enemies? What's so hard to understand about bless those who curse you? What's so hard to understand about do good to them that hate you? What's so hard to understand about pray for them that use you and persecute you? Now, I want you to notice, I did not ask what's so hard about doing. I, I, because somebody's going to say, hey, you just don't know. I, I, I didn't ask that. I didn't ask anything about doing. I said, what's so hard about understanding. Y'all been on the battlefield for your Lord for 30. Most hands stayed up at 30, and then a bunch of hands stayed up at 40, and still a good number of hands stayed up at 50. So it ain't like y'all just heard this stuff yesterday, right? There is nothing new about anything that I just said. What's so hard to understand about as I have loved you, so should you love one another? What's so hard to understand about forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors? Or if you prefer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What's so hard to understand about that? The answer is it's not hard to understand at all. So when Jesus says, whose eyes are open, but they do not see, he's talking about you. When Jesus says, whose ears are open, but they do not hear, he's talking about you. When Jesus says, you are unwilling to do an about face. That is, you are unwilling to turn. That is, you are unwilling to repent. Remember, repentance is the first step toward salvation. And Jesus says they are unwilling to do an about face. How can you say I've repented and you're still going in the same direction you've been going? It's not possible. Why does Jesus teach in parables, they ask? Jesus, why, 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 why do you use this method of teaching? Because I'm trying to make it as simple as I possibly can. And with its simplicity, somebody's still going to find a reason to say, 
I don't understand what you're talking about. Now, you can make it difficult if you want to. I spent three years in seminary, and, and, and there were folks who wrote, and every third word was a five-syllable word. They, and, and, and I think their whole point was to show people how many five-syllable, six-syllable, seven-syllable words they knew. You can make it more difficult if you want to. But why do that? When, when, when the whole point of communication is to make sure that you understand what I'm saying and I understand what you're saying. If I, if I talk to you about transubstantiation and consubstantiation, what you gonna do? Your eyes are gonna roll up in the back of your head. You, you're, gonna, you're gonna look at me and you're gonna do one of two things. You're either gonna squint like you really tried to understand or you're gonna nod your head like you do understand and you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it ain't gonna be tonight. <clears throat> Transubstantiation and consubstantiation have to do with religious views with regard to the Lord's Supper, just to let you know that I do know what they mean. <laughs> one, one, one denomination believes that when you take the Lord's Supper, it literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. Those are Catholics. That's called transubstantiation. As you bless the bread and the wine, it becomes the literal body and blood of Christ. Consubstantiation is what the Protestants believe, and, and by the way, Baptists are not Protestant. Uh, uh, we, we, we're Baptists. Protestants mean you protested against the Roman Catholic Church. Baptists were never a part of the Roman Catholic Church, therefore we are not protesters, even though we are lumped in with the Protestants. Consubstantiation is, is the point of view of people like United Methodists and Presbyterians and Episcopalians, which say that while the bread and the wine do not change in its essence, it, it, it does not become the literal body and blood of Christ. It takes on the spiritual aspect of the body and blood of Christ, and that's called consubstantiation. Baptists don't believe in either one of those. But since I use those terms and threw them out there, I just want y'all to know, he just made them words up. No, he did not. You go back and look them up. They're real. We, we don't believe in either one. We simply believe that the bread remains bread and the wine remains wine. And we partake of it simply as an acknowledgement of what was done for us by Christ and our identification with what he did. By the way, since I'm on this subject, and I ain't going to stay on it no longer than this, if you use the term sacrament in a Baptist church, you're using it wrong because we don't have sacraments. We don't believe in sacraments. And I know you've heard preachers pray about the sacrament. We ain't got no sacraments in, 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 in a Baptist church. A sacrament is an activity that conveys grace upon the participant. And so in the Catholic Church, when they call the Lord's Supper a sacrament, and there are seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, it means that when you partake of the bread and of the wine, that you receive a special blessing, a dispensation of blessing from the Lord because you take of the bread and of the wine. We don't believe that. I know we fill up the church on first Sunday because we want to make sure that we get our blessing. And we don't want to die without taking our Lord's Supper. That's why the deacons go out and take it to folk who ain't. By the way, have you read the scripture that talks about that? It says when you come together to eat. 
wait one for the other. Ain't nothing in Scripture that says, if you can't make it, we're going to take it to you. You got me off on a tangent now, or I guess I got myself off on a tangent now. But, but, but there is no place in the Scripture that says, if you can't get here, we'll take it to your house and call before you, we come to make sure that you're there. Amen. But, but because we are in Louisiana, and Louisiana, South Louisiana in particular, has such a heavy influence of Roman Catholicism, we, 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 we kind of let that sacrament thing bleed over into our practice. And people actually believe that they have to take their Lord's Supper. And if they don't take their Lord's Supper, then they're missing out on their blessing. They're missing out on, on their dispensation of grace. Baptists believe that you receive grace just through your belief in Jesus Christ. That you receive all the grace that you will ever need just through your acceptance of Jesus Christ as your Savior. You don't need no more grace. You don't need no new grace. By the way, you don't need no new falling of the Spirit either. I know we sing, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Here's the problem. He ain't never gone nowhere. If you have him, if you have the Holy Spirit, he has never left you. And I got good assurance of that. Jesus says so. Jesus says, I will send another comforter, another friend, the Holy Spirit, who will be with you forever. Well, if he's with you forever, where's he got to fall from? You got me off on a tangent. Now, about some of the silly, crazy things that we have allowed to bleed into our churches. But getting back to parables and talking to people in as elementary a way as possible, Jesus says that the purpose of the parable is to make the spiritual point in as simple a fashion as possible. That's a good thing for us to remember because we are not just here to hear the Word of God. We are here to share the Word of God. Every Christian is not just a hearer of the Word and not just a doer of the Word. We are called to be proclaimers of the Word. And as proclaimers, it is our responsibility to share the Word with others as we go and to do so in such a fashion that it is as simple as absolutely possible. Because the simpler the message the easier it is for people to receive it and to embrace it and to be changed by it. So, just as Jesus taught in parables, and, and he said he did so because he needed to make it as simple as possible, he also provides for us the model for how we should share the gospel with others. We should make the gospel as simple as we possibly can. So, that's why he does what he does. Now, that's in the middle of the passage that we read. At the start of the passage and at the end of the passage, Jesus tells this parable about a sower and seed. And what's important for us to understand is what the various things in the parable represent. As we go through this series uh, on the parables of Jesus, at some point every week, we're going to talk about what each aspect of the parable represents. 
What are the aspects of this parable that we need to lift up? Well, first we need to lift up the sower, the farmer. That's how he's listed in the message version. He's the farmer. We need to know who the farmer is. Then we need to know what the seed is. And then we need to know what the soil represents. Okay? So let's answer those three questions very quickly and very simply. The farmer is you. I just said part of our responsibility as Christians, as stewards of the gospel, is not just to be hearers and not just to be doers, but to also be proclaimers. The farmer serves as the proclaimer of the word of God, which leads us to understanding what the seed is. Because the farmer goes out into a field and he is spreading seed. So what does the seed represent? The seed represents the word of God. And, 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 and so it is the responsibility of us, the farmer, to share the seed, the word of God, in the field. The field, I didn't mention the field. The field represents the world. Okay? So we've got the farmer. We've got the seed. We've got the field. But then Jesus says that as the farmer shares the seed in the field, the seed falls on particular types of ground. And the particular types of ground represent those who hear the word of God. Now, we have a tendency, preachers have a tendency to oversimplify this, and we try to break it down into a mathematical equation. And, 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 and we say things like, if you look at it from a mathematical standpoint, three out of four places where the seed falls, nothing good happens. But it's not really about the math of it. It's not, it, it doesn't, the, the message that, that you are to come away with is not 75% of the time nothing's going to happen from the seed that you plant. Because if you looked at it from a mathematical point of view, the number would be a whole lot higher than 75%. Did you get that? <laughs> I was with somebody the other day, and we were talking about uh, uh, the ministry and the, and the work that we're doing. And I said to them, sometimes I, the older I get, the more I understand Jeremiah. Y'all know what I mean by that? Y'all don't know anything about what Jeremiah did? Jeremiah preached an unpopular message for 40 years. And for 40 years, he got no converts. Nobody believed him. Nobody embraced him. Nobody accepted him. They laughed at him. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. At some point, they tried to kill him. And after 40 years, you know what Jeremiah said? God, I'm going home. I ain't doing this no more. This is a waste of my time and my energy. I'm going home. And, and, and the point I was making to, to my colleagues is sometimes you get frustrated in this work. You know what you're doing is right. You know you're doing it to the best of your ability, and don't nothing come from it. If, if, if we were to look at it from a realistic standpoint, it's far more than 75% of the time that you plant seed but nothing comes up. The point of the matter is not to break it down mathematically. The point of the matter is to make it clear 
that you're not responsible for how the soil receives the seed. You're only responsible for making sure that the soil has access to the seed. Think about that. We can imagine, the, Jesus says that uh, a farmer planted seed, right? Now, I told y'all 30 minutes ago, I don't, I don't plant nothing. And if I do, it's going to die. But I listen to y'all talk about planting stuff. So I know from listening to y'all talk about planting stuff that there are ways to plant to make sure that you maximize the potential of the seed taking root and growing. You got to make sure that you use the proper fertilizer for the ground. You, you got to till the soil, which means you got to break up the soil and, and, and then you got to put the proper nutrients in the soil. You got to make sure that it's not too barren, not too dry, but it can't be too moist. It can't have too much shade, but it can't be out in the sun too long. Y'all got to find the optimum place to plant your stuff. And I listen to y'all talk about, y'all, y'all talk about planting the way y'all talk about fishing. Well, now this is the way I do it. And this is the way so-and-so, well, yeah, that's a good idea, but, but have you ever tried to plant this? If you plant tomatoes, it's got to be in this kind of soil. And if you plant okra, it's got to be in that. Y'all got, y'all are experts on all of that. So if y'all are experts and y'all don't do this for a living, don't you think that this man who's a farmer? Jesus starts by saying, a farmer planted seed. So I take from that that if he's a farmer, this is his business. This is his trade. He does this for a living. He, he, he does this in order to make money. He lives and dies, literally and economically, off of what he is able to produce from the land. And yet, it says that as the farmer plants seed, some of it falls on stony ground. Some of it falls on shallow ground. Some of it falls on thorny ground. And some of it falls on good ground. And it leads me, the novice, don't know nothing about planting anything, to ask the question, if you a farmer, wouldn't you know which ground to plant the seed on and which ground not to plant. It, it just seems logical to me, since y'all got all these things figured out and what you got to do and all the nutrients and how you got to break it up, that you would know there's not a good chance of growing anything if you plant it in this ground. There's a better chance if you plant it in that ground, right? Doesn't that make sense? Y'all just look at me like I'm crazy, but I'm not crazy. I'm making a point. The point that Jesus makes is that the farmer is not concerned about the ground. The farmer is concerned about the seed. The farmer ain't concerned about what you're concerned about. When Jesus tells this story, remember, he, he's talking like he's talking to three-year-olds. 
Jesus doesn't talk about the farmer breaking the soil up and tearing the soil down and uprooting all the weeds. He don't talk about none of that, not in this parable. All he says is he's got a bunch of seed, and he throws it out there on the ground. He walks, and he scatters. He walks, and he scatters. As he walks through the field, he scatters the seed. There's a lesson in that. Our job is not to be judgmental about the soil. Our job is simply to plant the seed. Our job is not to say, well, I'm not going to give this ground any seed because this ground isn't ready to receive See, somebody's going to have to come through and break this ground up before I will waste my seed by putting it in this ground. That's not the attitude that the farmer has. The farmer simply says, my job is to scatter the seed on any and every ground that I find. My job is to scatter the seed. What's the lesson for you and and me in that. The lesson for you and me is if we're the farmer and if the gospel is the seed and if we're going through the field, our job is to scatter the seed everywhere we go. Our job is not to say, well, they ain't ready to receive it, so we ain't going to give it. They, they aren't holy enough to receive. Do you remember when somebody thought you wasn't holy enough? Or have you always been as holy as you are? They aren't sanctified enough. Do you remember when, when, when nobody thought that you were sanctified? Or have you always been sanctified? Your job is to plant the seed everywhere you go. Now, now, now here, here, here's something for you to think about. If you're planting the seed everywhere you go and the seed falls on stony ground and on uh, shallow ground and on thorny ground, that means that you're walking through stony places and shallow places and thorny places. Think about that. You, holier than thou, you, saved, sanctified, heaven-bound, too blessed to be stressed, you. You spend a whole lot of time in stony places and in shallow places and in thorny places. I think there's a reason why Jesus chose stony and shallow and thorny. Because at some point, you've been stony. You've been shallow. You've been thorny. What does he say about the seed that falls on, on, on the stony ground? Look, look at verse 5. Some fell I'm sorry, verse 3 and 4. Listen, what do you make of this? A farmer planted seed. He scattered, as he scattered the seed, some of it fell on the road, and birds ate it. 
Then skip down to verse 15. That's the connection. Some people like the seed that falls on the hardened soil of the road. No sooner do they hear the word than Satan snatches away what has been planted in them. Some of you have been stony. Some of you may still be stony. Have you ever heard something from the Lord and just rejected it out of hand? Has the Lord ever planted something in your spirit and, 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 and you just don't want to have anything new? So you just resist it, reject it, push it away, act like it was never even said. In the, in, in the Noonday Bible study, we're, we're studying James. Turn in your Bibles to James for just a second. I want you to see what stony ground folk look like. Turn to James chapter 1. And, and understand this. James is not writing to unsaved folk. James is writing to the church. Okay? Look at verses 22 through 24. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you are a listener when you're anything but. Letting the word go in one ear and out the other. Act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror, walk away, and two minutes later have no idea who they are or what they look like. Doesn't that sound like stony ground folk? Did you know that you go to church with stony ground folk? Did you know that you live with stony ground? Folk. Folk who hear things in the word of the Lord and yet resist them, reject them, put them off, act like you didn't hear it. If you're planting seed, if you're scattering seed and some of the seed falls on stony ground, that means that you've been walking through stony places. And you ought to have compassion for those who are in stony places. Because as simple as the gospel is, some folks still have problems embracing it. This same James will say later on, you have not because you ask not. And some t TV preacher will tell you that's why you ain't got no money. You have not because you ask not. But no, I'll keep reading because James ain't talking about money. James says when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with evil intentions. You ask with selfish intentions. You ask with your mind and your heart fixed not on the things of God, but on the things of self. Is that not the definition of stony ground folk? Folk who just pick up on something that they heard somebody else say, and it sounds spiritual, and so you start saying it too, even though you have done nothing to try to cultivate what it is that you are saying. Stony ground folk. 
And then he talks about shallow ground folk, what, what, what Peterson calls in the message version, gravel. Look at verse five, verses 5 and 6. Some fell in the gravel. It sprouted quickly, but didn't put down roots. So when the sun came up, it withered just as quickly. Skip down to verse 16. And some are like the seed that lands in the gravel. When they first hear the word, they respond with great enthusiasm. But there is such shallow soil of character that when the emotions wear off and some difficulty arise, there is nothing to show for it. I love the way Peterson puts that in the message version. He's not saying that you didn't hear it. He's not saying that you didn't receive it. He's saying you didn't let it take root. He's talking about those people, and, and perhaps you have been those people at some point in time who think that once I come to Jesus, all my problems are over. Once I come to Jesus, nobody's ever going to mistreat me again. Once I come to Jesus, all my bills are going to be paid. Once I come to Jesus, my credit score is going to jump by 150 points. Once I come to Jesus, folk are going to just love me and want to do everything they can to help me all the time. Once I come to Jesus, my children are going to always do what I tell them to do. Once I come to Jesus, me and my spouse ain't going to ever have an argument, ain't going to ever have a crossword. We're going to always get along with one another. That's gravel. That's folk who are so excited. They have such a zeal for God. They, they, they've come into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and they're excited by what they have heard, by what they have learned about Jesus. And, and, and they believe that now there is never going to be another problem. And when problems come, they don't know what to do. Wait, 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 wait a minute, Jesus. I, I, I go to church every Sunday, and sometimes I go twice. Sometimes I stay for the 11 o'clock service and go to Sunday school in between. Wait, wait. I got up and came to choir rehearsal, and, 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 and I go to mission meeting, and I was out at Bible study on Wednesday night when I could have been at home watching TV. Wait a minute. What you mean I, I, I got these problems? I give my tithe, and I know that once I give my tithe, everything is going to be all right. Shallow folk. Shallow folk. Now, I'm not criticizing you for being shallow. I'm just, I'm just making the point. If you believe that once you come to Jesus, all your problems are over, you need to dig a little deeper. You, you need to look at what happens to folk who come to Jesus. Let's start with Jesus. 
Instead of going to all the folk who came to you, why don't we just start with Jesus? He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was placed upon him. Let's start with him. Dragged him out of the Garden of Gethsemane. Put him before seven fake sham trials between midnight and sunup. Beat him unmercifully, blindfolded him, spat upon him, brought him to Pilate on trumped up charges. When given the opportunity to set him free, said, no, kill him and set the murderer free. Beaten with a cat of nine tails until his back was open and sore and bloody. Given a cross to carry through the streets of Jerusalem. Crown of thorns pressed into his skull. When he reached Golgotha, Calvary, the place of the skull, they stretched him out on the wood that he had carried. And they took construction spikes and they used a sledgehammer because you can't use the home hammer from Home Depot in order to, 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 to knock construction spikes into flesh. They used a sledgehammer to brutalize him and, and, and spiked nails into his hands and into his feet and then lifted him up and planted him between the earth and left him there for six hours. Before I talk about Paul, three times shipwrecked and beaten several times, let me just stay with Jesus. Before I talk about Peter crucified upside down, just let me stay with Jesus. Before I talk about Thomas cut until he bled to death, just let me stay with Jesus. Before I talk about Matthew boiled in oil, let me stay with Jesus. Before I talk about James thrown off the pinnacle of the temple and then stoned to death, just let me stay with Jesus. I got enough trouble just with Jesus. You 30 days late on a bill and you, oh, Lord, what am I going to do? Come on, Jesus, help me now. Think about what he went through. Shallow folk. Not your fault that you're shallow if you don't seek to go any deeper. And part of our problem is we just want a surface religion. We don't want to go no deeper. One of the reasons why, reasons why a lot of folk are leaving some of our more traditional churches is because they don't want to be asked to do nothing but go to church. Now, that ain't popular, but that's the truth. They don't want to be asked to come and serve in a ministry. They just want to come on Sunday. They want to sing, and they want to dance, and they want to shout. They want to have a good time, and then they want to be left alone. They, 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 they don't want to go any deeper. If you really want to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you got to go past Sunday morning. You got, your, your faith ought to be more than an hour and a half on Sunday morning. More than an hour 
on Wednesday night. There ought to be more to it than that. If it's not, it's gravel. And when the sun comes out and when trouble comes, it's going to go away. Third, 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 third soil. I got 12 minutes. A third soil is, is, is thorny soil. Some fell in the weeds, verse 7. As it came up, it was strangled among the weeds, and nothing came of it. Skip down to verses 18 and 19. The seed cast in the weeds represents the ones who hear the kingdom news but are overwhelmed with worries about all the things they have to do and all the things they want to get. The stress strangles what they heard, and nothing comes of it. You know folk who worry about everything. At some point, the scripture says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, take your concerns to the Lord. Thorny ground. Weed-filled ground. Once again, nothing wrong with the seeds. You heard it. But the problem is, you allowed other stuff to get in the way. What happens if I give my tithe to the church? That's a worry for some folk. You get so sick of preachers talking about tithing, talking talk, talk about bring all the tithe to the storehouse. What happens if I bring my tithe to the storehouse instead of paying the bills that are coming to the house? Well, if that's your worry, then you don't believe the rest of the passage. Prove me now. Test me. Try me. Put me on trial. That's what he says. If you don't believe what I'm saying, I'm asking you to try me. And see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing. I like the word pour. P-O-U-R. I ain't so crazy about P-O-O-R, but I like P-O-U-R. And pour you out. See, pour is more than sprinkle. He doesn't say, I'll sprinkle you out. A blessing. He says, I'll pour you out. A blessing. That's so great, so abundant, that you won't have room enough to receive it. See, your problem is you worried so much about the first part, you didn't believe the second part. And for many of us, when it comes to the gospel, we have problems loving because we don't know what happens when we love somebody. What happens when I stop hating someone so? Let's be honest about something. Eight minutes left. Let's be honest about something. Some of us are so comfortable 
with our hate. That we're afraid to let it go. Because once we let go of the hate, we won't know who we are anymore. Oh, Fred, you just said something. Some of us are identified by our hate. You know so-and-so, they just don't like them, and they don't like that, and they don't like that. Some of us want to be identified. We like being identified by our hate. Yes, ma'am. That's correct. It is, it is hard for us to know when, when you've been in the same place for so long and you've become comfortable, even if the place where you are ain't no good, you'd rather stay in the no good place that you know than go into something else that you don't know. I am so tired of Christian folk saying, I want the Lord to open a door. If the Lord just opens a door for me, and then the Lord opens a door and you ain't willing to go through. You know why you ain't willing to go through? Because you're so, you're so comfortable with, with what's on this side of the door. And you don't know what's on the other side of the door. What's on the other side of the door could be terrible. What's on the other side of the door could be, could, could be dangerous. What's on the other side of the door could be deathly to me. What's on the other side of the door could be great. It could be marvelous. More often than not, it's some combination of all those things. There's probably some bad and some good. There's probably some high and some low. There's probably some wonderful and some not so wonderful. But you'll never know because you ain't willing to go through the door. Thorny ground. Always worried about something. Talking like you love the Lord. I used this example earlier today uh, uh, in, in the noon Bible study, but it fits with what I'm talking about right now. We need to be the fellow who brought his son to Jesus who had a seizure. In Mark chapter 9, Scripture tells that, that there was a man whose son was suffering with seizures, and he brought the son to Je Well, he came looking for Jesus, but Jesus and, and three of his disciples were gone. They, they, had, they had been on the mountain of transfiguration. But they found the other nine disciples, and, 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 and they came to them. He came to them with the son, and the, the nine disciples prayed over the man, and, and they tried to heal the man, but they couldn't heal the man. And when Jesus comes back, uh, uh, he, he says, what's going on? What, what's the problem? And he says, well, I, my, my son suffers with seizures. He, 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 he falls into convulsions, and, and I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't do anything to help him. But if you can, I'd like you to help him. And Jesus jumped on the word if. If I can. What do you mean, if I can? Don't, don't you believe that I can heal him? And the man says to Jesus, I want you to hear what he says. The man says to Jesus, Lord, I do believe. And then right on the back of that, he says, help me 
with my unbelief. Now, it sounds like it's duplicitous, but it's really not duplicitous. It's us. Because with the best of our intentions, we want to say, I do believe. But if we were to be honest, life gets in the way of belief. Burdens get in the way of belief. Trials and tribulations get in the way of belief. And so as much as we want to believe, there are things that pull us away from belief. And we have to overcome those things that pull us away. And so the man says what you and I ought to be saying, Lord, I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. See, it's the thorns. The, the, the seed is good. The ground is good. And, and, and the seed starts to work. But because the thorns are there, the thorns serve to separate the seed from the soil. So nothing comes of it. In order to keep that from happening, we have to be willing to say, help me with my unbelief. Last thing, three minutes. He says, some of it fell on good ground and came up with a flourish. Some versions say 30-fold, 60-fold, 90-fold, 100-fold. In other words, you got far more that was produced than what was planted. Now, that's the goal for all of us. The goal for us is to constantly move so that we are never stuck in a place where seed is planted, but nothing takes root. The goal for us is to get out of stony places and get out of shallow places and get out of thorny places and move into good ground. And here's the promise. If you ever make it to good ground, watch out for what the Lord can do. The Lord can take a little and do tremendous things with it. But you got to keep moving. You, you got to get out of stony and you got to get out of shallow. And you got to get out of thorny. And you got to get to good ground. There might be somebody here tonight who after having been a part of this Bible study, we want to accept Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. We're going to sing a verse of Just As I Am. And if there's one, we invite you to come. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I repeat after me, please. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. 
Lord, make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Y'all have a good evening.